Amen. Well, remain standing with me and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. And beloved, I'm going to read from verses 13 and 14. And before doing so, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we come and ask your blessing upon the reading and upon the preaching of your word. And fill us with your spirit of truth of understanding, discernment. Lord, if there be anything in us this morning that is contrary to this teaching, we pray, Lord, you'd make it known to us and that you would correct us, that you would give us the grace, Lord, to repent of either our ignorance or waywardness, and Lord, be corrected in the paths of righteousness and holiness. Now come, Lord, and bless your word. Bless the preaching of the gospel. And bless all those who love you. In Christ's name, amen. And beloved, I want to read verse 13 and following. The apostle Paul writes, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Beloved, this morning my intention is to lay before you the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you might find encouragement from the word of God and that you might wholeheartedly grasp and accept this profound doctrine of Christ being raised from the dead. It's not uncommon that when the gospel is established, when churches are built or being built, that error follows along. If you are familiar with the New Testament, and I hope that you are reading the New Testament, I hope you are actively reading your Bibles and becoming more and more familiar with those letters, the Gospels and those epistles, that you would understand that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the New Testament is written to inform and to correct that God's people might be rightly informed about the kingdom of God, that they might rightly understand it, and also that they would correct and put away from them the errors that are subject to spring up among sinners. And not just among ignorant Christians, but among those that are actively seeking to disrupt and destroy Christianity. Paul goes on and tells us, he said, that just as Jesus has disciples, well, so does Satan. Satan has his disciples, and they parade themselves around like he does as an angel of light. Most error comes into the church, certainly accompanying half-truths. It's unfortunate that God's people seem in, in one way or another to be tremendously naive and accepting or tolerant of views that do tend to be destructive to the kingdom of God and destructive to churches and to one's own testimony in life, Christian life. Paul gives three arguments to the error that was circulating among these believers and among other churches as well. If you read the New Testament, it's not just isolated to the church at Corinth. This idea that there is no resurrection of the dead, at least physically, or that it has happened. There were, there were differing 
elements to this error, some saying there was no physical resurrection, there would be no physical resurrection. Some promoted the idea, well, it has already happened, but don't you count on it in that Paul begins to, and he has to address this as we're going to see why in just a moment, but he presents in these 19 verses three arguments. The first argument he's going to present and that we'll look at is the biblical argument. Paul is going to lay before them the scriptures as the believer's authority, and we must certainly grasp that understanding that the word of God is the believers, it's the authority, it's what we hold to, it's what we cling to. If the Bible teaches it, we must grasp it, we must embrace it, and we must hold to it. Then there's a second argument that he's going to present, and that is the argument of historical evidence. Christianity has left its footprint in the resurrection of Christ and has left its mark upon history. Just as Jesus really came into this world incarnate in human flesh, Jesus also really died, was buried, and was raised again from the dead, really, historically. And of course, for decades, we have been infiltrated with this liberalism that says, well, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but not the physical resurrection of Jesus. All that matters is that philosophically, we embrace a resurrection of Jesus, and we can embrace the spiritual resurrection of Jesus. It's similar to what we've talked about when we read uh, well, these philosophers and reformers of old, we say, though they are dead, they still speak. And that's the way they think of Christ. Yes, though dead, he still speaks. Well, we are not to refer to Christ as we would the reformers. Christ is not dead. He was dead and he was raised from the dead. And he is now alive. And Paul is going to prove that. And then there is a third argument that Paul uses in order as if the first one wasn't good enough, the biblical one wasn't enough, or the historical evidence wasn't enough. Paul now is going to address it philosophically. He's going to address it with reason, sound reason. And I love this one. Not more than the others, but at the same time, beloved, if there's anything that the church lacks today is the ability to use their minds and think through issues and think through arguments and think through these, 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 these teachings and consider the consequences and make connections and Paul begins the, well, if this, then that logic. And it would help us if we did some of that. I mean, I, I don't think I'm being too harsh, brothers and sisters, by, by acknowledging that for some reason, and I don't know how this has happened, I don't know you know, how it has come to be this way, but most Christians are completely satisfied of saying, well, you know, I believe Jesus is important and that's enough. And that's not enough, as we're going to see. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus was important. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a great teacher, a superior teacher. It's not enough to believe that Jesus laid the foundation for a lot of good principles to be happy. All of those things are, are, are good, but they're not enough, as we will see. And so it's these three arguments, beloved, that Paul uses to correct the church at Corinth and certainly to highlight the absurdity of these false teachers that had infiltrated in some way influenced those believers there 
And of course, they believed they were superior in intellect, superior in rhetoric, and all of these things. And Paul, in these three arguments, destroys the idea that there is no resurrection of the dead for the Christian. And he certainly destroys the idea that Christ did not raise from the dead physically. Well, let's begin looking at these three arguments. Look at verse one. Look at those first two verses. Look at what Paul writes. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let us just stop there for a moment and look at what Paul is saying here. Now, Paul begins chapter 15 as it's a new topic. It's a new subject. He It's emphatic. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Now, we all should, in this church, know what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. The good news about what? The good news is this, that man being justly condemned in the covenant of works, violating God's commandment, standing under just condemnation, the good news is God did not leave man in that condition, that God gave man an opportunity to have his condemnation remedied in his son Jesus. And by repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ, Christ being the sin bearer upon the cross would give to them a righteous that is acceptable before the Father. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ has died in your place. That's good news. And those who have put their faith in him and reached out and grabbed him, as Calvin says, by faith, trusting in him, having their sins forgiven, have been given a righteousness that's acceptable to the Father and that they stand in that righteousness of Christ, fully accepted in the beloved, adopted into the family of God. Paul says, I have made known to you these things. I've, I've taught you these things. I've told you these things. And he calls all of this doctrine that they had been taught the gospel. He says, I preached it to you. This is what I taught. This is my message to you. He goes, and not only that, he said, not only was that my gospel, that is, I haven't changed. Nothing's changed. This is what I preached, and this is what you received. You received my gospel. Look at what it says right there in the latter half of verse one. It says, which you received in which you also stand. Paul says, there's not two gospels. There's one gospel. And that gospel was preached to you by me. And that was what you received. And he says in verse two, he says, and that's what saved you. Look at verse two. By which you, by which also you are saved. Or it could be translated, and that's the gospel that saved you and is saving you. Paul is laying a firm foundation for the three arguments. And he's saying, now wait a minute, brothers and sisters, if you accept this idea that there is no resurrection of Christ and there is no resurrection of believers, then you are abandoning the gospel that I preached to you. Because that's not what I preached. Now notice not only is this gospel was the gospel that saved you and is now saving you, but notice that very, very, very important little two-letter word, if. This conditional statement, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. 
notice, Paul lays out before them that there, there's this condition. And this is important because he's saying, yes, you received the gospel. That was your standing. But now you are becoming cavalier and abandoning these gospel truths and principles and doctrines and teachings that I gave to you that you gladly received and accepted as the gospel. But you must hold fast to these things. It's imperative, beloved, that as Christians, we hold fast to the gospel. Not just when we were saved, but as it continues to save us. I do think as Christians, there's a temptation to become laxed and more tolerant as we get older. But we cannot, we cannot become laxed in our own convictions, loose in our understanding of the gospel and of these biblical truths, nor can we become tolerant of those serious errors that will tend to come into the church. They're fancy at first. Everybody loves talking about them and debating them, not realizing the consequences that it will bring, the fruit that it will bear within the congregation. He says, you must hold fast to that which I preach to you. That we must remember, beloved, there's a gospel that saved us and there's a gospel that keeps saving us and that gospel must constantly be held on to by us, by those who profess to know Christ, to believe in him. Now notice what he says at the end of verse two, unless what? Unless you have believed in vain. You know, I was having a conversation just a little while ago about friends of my early Christian life. And me and, and this fellow was talking about people we knew. And, you know, and back when I was active or even signed up and all that on Facebook, you know, I was uh, keeping up with people that I hadn't, uh, no longer had a close relationship with, but I had had a close relationship with at one time. And it was sad because over the years, you know, once you've been a Christian for 20, 30 years or so, you begin to see that, well, there are people that you loved and respect and, and wanted to emulate their faith that they no longer walk with Jesus. Have you noticed that? Have you experienced that? That there were people in your early Christian life that you believed were, uh, was a giant in the faith. And over time, what happened? How, how did they fall? How did they come to this place where they no longer even acknowledge Jesus as Savior? Well, it's right there in verse two. They didn't hold fast the word of truth. They didn't cling to the gospel. They didn't hold on to it. For some reason or another, the gospel became old and redundant and uh, well, whatever. No longer tickled their fancy. It no longer I guess, fed their interests or their lust, whichever one, and they moved on. Well, this is a warning to us, brothers and sisters, that we must, that we have the duty as professing Christians to do what? Hold on to the gospel. And the gospel is that whole realm and system of teaching that we would call, well, biblical truth. Now, look at what Paul says in verse 3 as he begins this, this argument from Scripture. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I 
also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now we need to make sure we understand this. Paul here is telling us, now I preached this to you. This was part of my preaching. I laid down a doctrinal foundation for you to believe. And what was that foundation? He says, well, first of all, it's of first importance. It's a superior truth. It's essential. What Paul is beginning to inform these Christians with, he said, listen, if, if you are toying with, if you are contemplating, rejecting the idea of the resurrection of Christ, you must, need to, you must understand something. You are about to reject the gospel. Because the gospel is built upon this foundation of Christ's incarnation, his life, his death and resurrection. It is the gospel. He says it's of first importance. That, how, do we, how else can we say it? We can say it this way. If one does not believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ physical incarnation of Jesus Christ, if one does not believe in his true death, if one does not believe in his resurrection on the third day, they cannot be a Christian. Now, that's how essential it is. Now, Paul is not presenting these three arguments and then saying to the Corinthians, well, you decide if you like my arguments better than their arguments and you just pick and, you know, you just choose one and, and roll with it. But, you know, Paul is saying, listen, listen, to abandon, to abandon the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to abandon the gospel. Now, we're going to look at what that leads to in a moment. So brothers and sisters, as, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ today, we do not do so in vain. We do it as the very essence of our faith. If Christ is not raised from the dead, what does Paul say? Your faith is in vain and our preaching is pitiful. I think for all too often Christianity has become too much of a buffet. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, church hopping is so popular. We just hop from church to church to church to church, really not looking at the doctrine, really not looking at what is taught from the pulpit, not looking at what is supported as the uh, being disciples of Jesus Christ, but really just looking for all the bells and the whistles and the, the pageantry and what can it be offered? What can it give my family? What can it do to these? You know, how does it make me feel? And I think by what we look, when we look around and we see how, how, Far our culture has fallen and is continuing to just, just, just roll downhill. We have seen that the churches are inadequate and they have not prepared the people to truly act as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I'm not talking about conservatism. You can be a conservative and not be a Christian. There's a difference. Part of the problem is that we've equated and conflated this idea of conservatism with Christianity, and that was a mistake. The very essence of Christianity is this gospel, and at the heart of this gospel is the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's a doctrine of first importance, and I gave this to you. He says, and Christ had died for our sins according to the scriptures. We could turn to dozens and dozens and dozens of places in scripture, but I want to turn to one primarily, and it's one that we've looked at recently, but turn, in to, turn to Luke 24. I want to show you this truth. 
Luke 24. And this is the disciples that uh, are on the road to Emmaus. And, and again, these two disciples are uh, accompanied by Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus up front and begins the... the the narrative begins at verse 13, but notice in verse 25. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And what did Jesus do as he, what did Jesus do when he walked with these two disciples on the road? Well, he opened up the Bible. He opened up the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament then. Jesus opens up the Old Testament to them. And what does he do from the Old Testament? He shows them himself. He shows them Jesus. That's a hermeneutic, isn't it? We're learning there that if we're going to open up rightly the Old Testament, who should we be looking for in the Old Testament? We should be looking for Jesus. And we can understand it. Because what, what does Jesus say? They spoke about me. Notice their testimony in verse 32. He says, or verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Then, he sa then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Beloved, you, I, one of my disappointments in my education, which primarily focused on nuthetic counseling, was I began to realize that so many believers in addressing their problems were really not trusting in Christ. They, they were trusting in the principles. They were trusting in a system. And, and, and instead of the seeking the face of the Lord and his strength and his grace and his mercy and those things that would be needed to fight temptation in order to work through these various lusts and these, these wayward thoughts and these ignorance and their own ignorance and, and any rebellion in their life and all of those things and to heal their relationships around them, you know, they really wanted to come in and be like, well, pastor, just give me a verse and, you know, pray with me and I'll be on my way as if they could just memorize a verse and somehow their problems would go away. And that was disappointing. I was disappointed. And it really wasn't much different than a 12-step program. Now, I'm not condemning biblical counseling. That's not my point. Because we are to counsel one another from the scriptures. But beloved, listen to me. And, and don't make this mistake. The scriptures are a means to Christ. They are a means to the glory of Christ. They are a means to the power of Christ. They are a means to the ministry of Christ. They are a means to the teaching of Christ. They are a means about him. And whenever we find ourselves in darkness, whenever we find ourselves in this sinful season or moment or whatever it is, our job is to draw near to him who has been resurrected from the dead who sits at the right hand of the Father, mediating on our behalf, praying for us, ministering to us, empowering us. Paul's going to highlight what I'm saying in a moment. Let's look at just several places quickly. Don't have time to 
uh, you know, camp out here certainly, but just look at Acts chapter 2. If you just wanted to survey uh, the book of Acts, you would see that the preaching of the gospel highlighted and maintained the idea of the, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24 in Peter's sermon. He says, but God raised him up again. Now he'd been put to death by the hands of sinful men, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible for the grave to hold him because it was not his own sin he was paying for. Christ was the innocent victim, if you will. It was our sins that he paid for. Christ was innocent. He was guiltless, and he bore our sins as payment to God's justice. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Look at the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Verse 15 but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And look at verse 26. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Chapter 4 and verse 10, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder's but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Chapter 5, verse 30, 31. Chapter 10, verse 40. Chapter 17, verse 31. And on and on and on. What's the point? The point is that the Bible does not shy away from the miraculous fact that Jesus died and his father rose, raised him from the dead. As a what? As a testimony to God's divine grace. Now you can say, you know, and you may witness to people and you may preach this gospel and they say, well, I, I, I don't believe you can die and be resurrected. So? So what? I mean, I think it's becoming easier in some sense, and I don't mean to be comical because I don't think the pulpit is a place for comedy at all, but let's just be uh, serious here uh, in the sense that, I mean, we live in a day and time where, well, boys can be girls and girls can be boys. Why can't the dead rise? He was dead, and he is dead no longer. So looking back over at 1 Corinthians 15, and then I would say this about evangelism. Uh, beloved, our goal in evangelism or in evangelizing, it, it, it's not necessarily primarily to convince people. That's secondary. Our first priority is to tell the truth. Tell the truth. And let God's spirit do the conviction. Let God's spirit bring the conviction and do the convicting. Let the spirit of God do his work. 
But we are to tell the truth and we are not to shrink back in embarrassment by the fact that God raised his son from the dead and that it is a reality. And now let's look at the historical fact. Notice what Paul says. He moves on from the scriptures. Look at verse four and he says, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Let's stop there. Paul brings into his argument to the Christians at Corinth that this resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. Historical fact. And what does Paul do? Why is it important for Paul to begin at verse 5 mentioning names? Well, because they could have easily contacted these people. Now, brothers and sisters, don't make light of testimony. Don't make light of testimony. Certainly people can believe fantastical things, but this is not without evidence. This is not without evidence. I mean, we're not talking about believing in fantasy. We're talking about, yes, giving testimony that Christ, the risen Lord, appeared to me and this is what he said and this gentleman and this woman and this person and this group all testifying to the same effect. Now, how many people do you need to hear from to establish the truth? The Bible talks about two witnesses. Two. Well, we have here way more than two. Way more than two. And brothers and sisters, what can we, what are we to make of this? What Paul is getting at here, and what even Paul says about himself, is that these people who encountered the risen Savior have all been changed. They've been changed. They all at some degree, in some degree and at some level became what? Servants of Christ. He was dead. He's no longer dead. He appears and he commissions his people, his disciples and all of them. I mean, notice, I mean, James, I mean, this is possible in verse seven. He appeared to James and then all the apostles, James being his half brother and the leader of the church at Jerusalem would go on to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem. All of these disciples, what does history tell us about the disciples? That they all gave their life for Christ. I mean, you might find one crazy person to do that. But all of them? Meaning, beloved, it's so difficult to just get two or three together. Look how hard it is for us to get people together. And yet look at the mass of people that have dedicated their lives to the service of this risen Lord. And Paul mentions this about himself in verse 8. He says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And I believe when he says untimely born here, I agree with Charles Hodge. I believe he's talking about his new birth. Meaning that after these things, after these visitations, Christ also appeared to me. What Paul is saying is, he's alive. He's alive. 
I'm writing to you. I have preached this gospel to you. I'm, I, I am promoting this gospel. I am, I am building churches. I am crossing land and sea to preach the gospel because Christ had also appeared to me. He's not just the spirit. He's risen. He's alive. And, and look at what he says. He says, and now he gives this personal testimony in verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul says in verse 9, I mean, Paul is at least acknowledging that there are there are certain sins we never, ever get over. Was, did Paul, was Paul forgiven for persecuting the church of Christ? Yes. But it was also a sin that would always be used in Paul's testimony to commemorate the grace of Christ. I was a persecutor of the church and Christ came to me and saved me and he set me apart and he called me to be an apostle to preach the gospel. Go read Acts 9. You read Acts 13. Herod was one that also persecuted the church, but God didn't save him. It's by grace. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. Notice, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, meaning the disciples, the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. What's Paul saying? See, see, Paul, listen, the grace of God has no power if Christ is dead. It is the sitting, it is the, the mediation at the right hand of God that the grace of God goes forth into the lives of believers and makes them what they are and gives them the power to be what they need to be. <laughs> we talked about counseling earlier. It's the grace of Almighty God. Come to me, O Lord. Change me. Have mercy upon me. And what does Paul say? That's exactly what Paul says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I can't do anything about what I was. I can't divorce myself from the fact that I used to persecute the church. His grace toward me did not prove in vain, though, because as he saved me, what did he say? I labored more than all the other apostles. That is, this, this grace proved to be effectual and it empowered me and it moved me and it caused me to be the missionary that I am. And he says, I, he, look what he says, not I, but the grace of God. Isn't that what we say? Isn't that what we say when, when someone acknowledges how we have improved or changed or overcome certain temptations and sins and all these things? We say, oh, but the grace of God in me. That's what it is. Because Christ is alive and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? He's ministering to me the grace of God and it's empowering me to be able to fight against the lusts and temptations and even the errors of the day. You might be surprised, brothers and sisters, that this idea that Christ did not raise physically from the dead is still alive and well in our day. And, and, Paul, and Paul defeats that argument in this text of scripture. And look what he says in verse 11. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And what Paul is saying is this powerful, this powerful gospel that, that, that exhibits this grace that changed you. 
This is the same book that this is the same book that testifies as were some of you homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, thieves, all of the he says as were some of you but not any more. What happened? God in Christ his grace changed you and you're no longer that person. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. So Paul, again, establishes the historical fact that Christ was raised from the dead and and he was seen. He was heard. It was witnessed. And it's undeniable. He says, though some of them sleep, well, there are many that are still alive. You could talk to them if you wish. If you want to, I mean, if the scriptures aren't enough, talk to some who talk to Jesus, and I am one of them. But there are others. Now let's look at verse 12 and following, and we're going to see this argument that Paul presents from reason. Paul says, he says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, well, here's what Paul's saying. He's, uh, Paul's saying, look, some of you among you, not the whole church, there were a few, some, we don't know who they are or we don't know who they were. We're not told. But Paul says, look, some of you are telling your brothers and sisters that there's no resurrection of believers. Well, Paul then turns the table. He says, well, wait a minute. If there is no resurrection of the believer, then how was Christ raised from the dead? He caught them in their own argument, if you will. He says, how can that be? Because what? We preached a risen Christ. But how can he be raised from the dead if you say there is no resurrection? Notice how he proceeds. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also in vain. Now, Paul begins in this reasonable argument, that is this argument for reason or logic. He says, listen, notice the implications here. Notice the implications of your own, of of these few teaching this doctrine. He says, well, first of all, if the believer is not going to be raised, then Christ wasn't raised. Now, what's the argument? The argument is because Christ has been raised, the believer is going to be raised. And he does that in the latter part of chapter 15. We won't get that far this morning. But notice what he does say. He says, these are the implications. Notice the first one, verse 14. If Christ is not raised from the dead, our preaching is vain. What does he mean by vain? It's useless. It's useless. It's of no value. It's of no use. And if our preaching is useless, then your faith that you exhibited due to the preaching of a risen Savior is useless. And that's a strong, those are strong implications. As he begins to work his way through these implications of this, this error, if you will, he talks about preaching being in vain. And now we are told, Paul also says, it's the preaching of the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. It's the preaching of the gospel that we see in Acts, doing what? Converting thousands of people. It's the heralding. It's the preaching. It's not the the memes. I mean, it's almost like we as Christians have been reduced to these, is that what you call them, memes? I don't know. You just send a little picture and it's got a little verse on it and it's just tossed around and everybody thinks that that's Christianity. It's the preaching 
of the gospel. And we've already laid out what that gospel looks like. And he says, if I, if Christ has not been risen, then what I have preached to you is useless. It has no value to you. It's useless. Why are we here? Right? I remember some visitors from college bringing one of their friends from school to church one Sunday and I don't remember what I was preaching, but it obviously offended this person. And after the service was over, he could not wait to leave. And he was just very offended. And he turns and he looks at the ones that invited him and brought him to the worship service. He said, I cannot believe for one minute you would sit under such offensive preaching. And be told you're a sinner. And he stormed out. But if Christ is not raised from the dead, beloved, it's all useless. It's all for nothing. Even the very faith that we exhibit and profess to have is, is, is of no value to any of us if Christ is not risen Look at verse 15. It says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. This is what Paul is talking about preachers here. He says, listen, not only is preaching in vain and faith in vain, but we are even immoral. We're liars. Why? Because we preach a gospel that Christ has been raised from the dead. And that's not true, he says. If, if the error is correct, he says, we have proven to be liars, false witnesses, he said, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul says we become guilty of accusing God of something he didn't do if this error is true. Now, of course, Paul is defeating the error, isn't he? For we know that preaching is the power of God unto salvation. And we know that one's faith in Christ is not in vain. It is active in their lives to change them for the glory of God and their good. And we know that it is not bearing false witness to God. But look at what he says. He says, In verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. For if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now, verse 17, that's that's the, here's what Paul is saying. He goes, look, if preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We have become immoral preachers. We have false, bear, we, we're guilty of bearing false witness against God. We are accusing God of doing something he did not do, which is raising Jesus from the dead. But then he says this, he says, and you are still in your sins. You see, beloved, if Jesus is just a simple martyr, you're, you and I are still in our sins. Mohammed is still in the grave, right? Russell Taz, the, Joseph Smith, they're dead. They're still in the grave. See, if Jesus is just a good teacher and a martyr, then we're all pitiful, Paul says. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, then, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, look, again, he says, and then all the people that you love that have perished in Christ. He said, guess what? You're never going to see them again. You know the hope we have of those ancestors we have, those family members that we love dearly that have gone on to be with the Lord? He says, no, you're not going to see them again because they perished and that's all you're going to do when you close your eyes and take your last breath. You're just going to perish too. You have no hope. There is no hope to the afterlife, beloved, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. In verse 19, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. He said, what is it to hope in Christ if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead? 
We are pitiful. You know, the world sees all the people gathering today and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and there are going to be many people walk out of those churches that really don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead. And that will keep them from ever, ever changing because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is about a risen Savior, one who died for our justification, raised for our justification, one that has paid for our sins, and one that sits at the right hand of God in the ministry of mediation as prophet, priest, and king, ministering to us what? The powerful grace of God. And we can, overcome, we can overcome all kinds of sins by the grace of God. Why? Because Jesus is alive and he is ministering that word of truth to our hearts. And that grace comes with power and efficacy. And we can change. We can be different. Why? Because Christ lives. That's why. Not because you're smart. Not because you have a good counselor. Because Jesus lives and he is caring for you because he is alive and he does care for you and that's why you have hope and that's why we have hope and that's why we can face this upside down world with the hope knowing that it is Christ who sits at God's right hand. It is Christ that's bringing dominion. Why? Because he's not dead. He's alive. And he is submitting this world up under his dominion. We're not going to go there. We don't have time to go there. We've already, we've already taken up our time this morning. There are three arguments. There's the biblical argument. There's the historical argument. And then there's the argument from reason. Beloved, listen to me. Don't reject the scriptures. To not believe what the scriptures testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to reject divine authority. Number two, don't turn a blind eye to the evidence. Don't turn a blind eye to the evidence. If 500 can't convince you, nothing can convince you, right? If you can't be convinced by the historical evidence, then you're just you're just turn, you're choosing to turn a blind eye to it and say no i won't believe it and then thirdly don't ignore sound reason don't ignore it if if this then that right if christ has not been raised from the dead then we are still in our sins. That's the ultimate tragedy, isn't it? I mean, we can gather and hear people speak and we can love to hear them talk and go, oh, I just love, I love rhetoric. I love to hear people preach. I love to hear this. I mean, it just makes me feel good, but it's in vain if Christ has not been raised. It's the raising of Christ from the dead. It's the resurrection of Christ that gives the power to these feeble men and their sermons because it's the power of the gospel unto salvation. It's the power of God. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are asking for your blessing upon us. We are asking that you come and certainly, Lord, give us that strength of hope that strength that comes, Lord, in knowing that this is what the Bible teaches and we rest in that. And whenever we become shaken or rattled by some false teaching, Lord, let us run to Scripture. Lord, let us also recognize that these biblical truths have been witnessed by many. They're not isolated. They're not off in a mystical land somewhere. They're not, it wasn't in a dream world. It wasn't ethereal. It happened in this world. And people saw it. And Father, it defies reason 
Lord, when we see the reign of Christ, we see his dominion, we see the power of the gospel going forth, and it has changed countries and nations and families, and it continues to change people this very day. Even right now, even now under the preaching of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Father, you are showing your power in us. And you are encouraging us and empowering us to live every day, as Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Lord, though we were one thing, we are now another in Christ. Praise be your name. Now, Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, come and meet with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.